My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of History of the Mormon Church in 50 Objects. Before we dive into the show today, I wanted to apologize for taking longer than normal to get this episode out. As I recently started a new job that has me crossing the country quite a bit, it's been a bit hard managing my schedule. I actually wrote up this show about a week ago, but more than once forgot to carry my microphone with me and thus couldn't record it. So bear with me, I'll be better about getting these shows out going forward. Now back to the show. As you know, this podcast is set in the 1800s. This was an interesting time to be alive, not just in terms of American expansion and religion, but also in the field of medicine. Americans at this time fought sicknesses that today seem quite mild. Take, for example, a toothache. Today, we can quickly, and most of the time rather cheaply, have a toothache fixed by one of many local dentists. But in the 1800s, before pain medication and the proper understanding of nerves, Toothaches could last for months or longer. Now, here is a strange story that has generally been lost to history. Some toothaches in the 1800s could cause your teeth to spontaneously combust. Yes, it sounds crazy, but we have journal entries from the Dental Cosmos, the first major journal for American dentists, that document this phenomenon. They record, starting in the year 1817, all the way up to 1855, many cases of patients complaining of severe toothaches, followed by a loud crack and an exploding tooth. Now, modern dentists hypothesize that the reason for this was that in the early 1800s, a wide variety of metals were used to fill dental cavities. It's supposed that if two different metals had been used, this could create an electrochemical cell, or essentially, the dentist then would be accidentally turning your tooth into a low-voltage battery. The theory is that if the filling were improperly done so that the cavity remained, that would mean the possibility of a buildup of hydrogen within the tooth that would cause the metals to combust. Hence, exploding teeth sounds like a frightening thing. But of all the crazy and strange medical challenges of the 1800s, I think the hardest may have been the sicknesses. It's staggering to consider just how much humans have learned about sicknesses and how to combat them in just the last 200 years. Take, for example, a sickness like malaria. We have historical documentation proving that malaria has existed among mankind for over 4,000 years. Although it's been known by many names, we call it today malaria because it comes from Italian for bad air or mal, bad, area, air. And according to UNICEF, over 1 million people die a year from malaria and the complications of that sickness. Now, most of malaria's victims today are children under the age of 5, and 90% of those deaths take place in sub-Saharan countries in Africa. But throughout history, we can read about how malaria has decimated huge swaths of human beings. One small example of just how contagious and dangerous it can be took place in the years 1905 to 1910. During those years, the construction was taking place on the Panama Canal. It was a massive project that predated modern technologies and therefore required the work of a lot of human beings to accomplish it. 
As the project got underway in 1906, there were just over 26,000 people working on the Panama Canal. That's when malaria struck. Of those 26,000 people, 21,000 were hospitalized during that time for malaria. 21,000. Many of those people died, and it would take a lot of ingenuity to combat the sickness and the mosquitoes that were carrying it. So, considering the devastation that malaria is inflicting today and throughout this century, how are people in the 1800s going to combat such a sickness? The fleeing Mormons were about to wander right into malaria's path, and one of the many ways they fought it off is today's object. Today's object is Joseph Smith's red silk handkerchief. So, what is Joseph Smith's red silk handkerchief, and how did it come about? First, some context. In the last episode, we covered Liberty Jail and the period of time in 1838 to 1839 where the Mormons were being driven from Missouri. This was an extremely hectic time for the Mormons. Many left the religion, having lost their faith in Joseph Smith. All were wondering why the Mormon prophet couldn't have seen this coming and what they were to do now. To add to the shaken faith, the Mormon leadership as a whole was scattered. The entire Mormon First Presidency, consisting of Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Hiram Smith, were in jail. The ranks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles had been thinned. David Patton had been killed in the Battle of Crooked River. Parley Pratt was in jail, and his brother Orson was with a group of Mormons in St. Louis. Thomas Marsh, William Smith, and Orson Hyde were disaffected with the church and no longer counted among the Mormons. Therefore, Leadership of the scattering Mormons fell to Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. Now where were the Mormons to go? They couldn't go west, as that was Indian territory, and it was not open at the time to settlers. Iowa to the north had land, but not a lot of timber on its rolling plains. They couldn't go south through Missouri, as we've now covered. The Missourians were hostile to the Mormons. So the Mormons felt their best option would be to head back east towards Ohio, the area that they knew already. So they began the trek east out of Missouri, crossing the Mississippi and settling on the banks of Illinois to decide where to go from there. Now, like we discussed briefly in the previous podcast, Brigham Young organized a committee for removal to aid the poor Mormons out of Missouri. The committee arranged food, clothing when available, and meeker wagons to transfer the Mormons. Nearly 400 Mormon families covenanted with Brigham to place all of their available property at the disposal of the committee for the purpose of providing means for the removal of all poor and destitute Mormons from Missouri. By mid-February of 1839, a long wagon trail of Mormons was making its way east through Missouri snows of winter toward the frozen Mississippi to get into Illinois. Leaving Missouri in such a hurry was not easy for most of the Mormon refugees. Many people sold all their possessions and lands at unreasonably low prices to obtain means to flee the state. One Missouri man claimed to have bought 40 acres of good land from a Mormon for a blind horse and a clock. Others reported to have bought land for Mormons for only 50 cents per acre. The Mormons had turned into refugees, and the Missourians were taking advantage of them. Some Mormons didn't even get a chance to sell their lands or possessions at all, and they just left by foot. When the Mormons arrived on the frozen banks of the Mississippi River, only a few parts were frozen hard enough to carry Mormons across. After a few fell through the ice, a ferry was found, and a long line of Mormons had to wait to be shuffled across the ferry as it fought off the ice chunks to get to Illinois. 
At this time, Emma Smith arrived at the river alone with her children. Emma had rolled up the priceless manuscripts, placed them in cotton bags, and tied them under her long skirt so they couldn't be stolen by the militia. When Emma arrived at the river, rather than wait in line or risk her wagon and children on the ferry, Emma and her kids left it all on the banks, and holding two children, and with the other two clinging to her skirt, she walked across the frozen ice, arriving in Illinois. Here in the town of Quincy, Illinois, most of the Mormons would wait out the rest of the winter, as thousands of Mormons crossed the river. Now, to speed up the story here a bit, Brigham Young wanted the Mormons to find a new land on which they could gather and rebuild. However, Bishop Partridge and some of the other leaders didn't feel like that was a good idea. The gathering Mormons now had been driven out of Independence, Kirtland, Far West, and all of Missouri. It seemed to Bishop Partridge that gathering in a large group was a bad idea. It only led to persecution. He felt that the Mormons should all go their separate ways and worship on their own. Brigham Young, however, convinced the Mormons to all wait it out until Joseph Smith could be released from jail, and then they could decide what to do. So, fast-forwarding to April, Joseph Smith and the First Presidency were finally released, or escaped according to Missouri records, and they arrived in Quincy. So, what did Joseph Smith want to do? Joseph Smith said that the command came immediately from God, that the Mormons were to rebuild again. So, the Mormon leaders gathered their remaining funds and met with Illinois locals and found a man who had recently been baptized and was willing to sell to the church over 20,000 acres of land mostly on credit. Most of this land stretched far into Iowa, but the part that most appealed to Joseph Smith was a small, swampy region with only a few settled homes right on a bend of the Mississippi called Commerce, Illinois. So, on July 1st of that year, Joseph Smith issued a public letter to all the Mormons everywhere commanding them to meet to this new site. Joseph Smith's family moved into a small log home, but most of the arriving Mormons lived in tents, wagons, or small dugouts. As for the rest of the church leadership, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, and Orson Pratt found an empty military barracks that had been left on the land from the Black Hawk War. In the days following the call to gather, Joseph Smith renamed the city of commerce, Illinois, to Nauvoo, a Hebrew word meaning beautiful. The good news about this uncharted land was that Joseph Smith had the Platte of Zion, which we discussed in episode 12 if you missed it. So he was ready and knew exactly how to build up a city. Now, as the Mormons began to gather and build up Nauvoo, the first thing they had to do was dig ditches throughout Nauvoo to drain the swamp. This put them in contact with mosquitoes. 18th century medicine didn't know this at the time, but the malaria sickness we spoke about was being carried by mosquitoes, and it was about to hit the Mormons hard. Malaria is a disease that causes an attack of chills and fever and is often fatal. The Mormons at the time didn't know it was malaria. In their journals, they called it agu. The disease immediately brought down all the Mormons on both sides of the Mississippi. The fevers were so severe that one Mormon recorded in her journal, quote, we were just barely able to crawl around and wait on each other, end quote. As Mormons started to die, Joseph Smith's father and son contracted the sickness. All of the Quorum of the Twelve had it. And as Emma and Joseph were tending to the sick, it finally struck Joseph Smith. So, let me pause the story here for a bit. How did the Mormons still have faith in Joseph Smith? Things are just dire. They've just been driven all over the eastern states. Most are left with nothing. 
They've given Justice Smith another chance here. They've heeded the call to gather again, and they arrive on the swampy banks of Nauvoo to live in tents and be stricken with malaria? Something needed to happen. This had to be a serious breaking point for the Mormons and for Joseph Smith himself. Just my opinion here. But in the New Testament book of John, the story is told where Jesus Christ is walking with his apostles and they come upon a blind man. The apostles, wanting to understand why God would curse this man, ask Jesus who committed the sin that must have stricken this man with blindness. Was it the man or his parents that had stricken him blind? Jesus said that it wasn't the man or the parents, but it happened so that the works of God could be made manifest. I wonder if Joseph Smith had read that portion of the New Testament because on July 22nd, stricken with the chills, Joseph Smith didn't just lay in bed and wonder who had sinned to cause this great and terrible curse and persecutions to fall upon the Mormons. Joseph Smith was ready to make the works of God made manifest. This day would be a rallying point and a faith builder for the Mormons. So on July 22nd, Joseph Smith arose and according to his journal said that he was filled with the Spirit. According to Heber C. Kimball, Joseph Smith blessed all the people in his house, his son and his father, and they were immediately healed. He blessed the people in his yard and healed them too. He went down to the river, and with Heber C. Kimball, Joseph Smith visited the homes of all the members of the Quorum of the Twelve and administered healing blessings. Brigham Young, Wilford Woodruff, Orson Pratt, and John Taylor were healed and commanded by Joseph Smith to go among the Mormons and heal them with priesthood blessings too. Many of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve recorded that they accompanied Joseph Smith to the homes of Mormons that looked dead, and that Joseph Smith healed them. This wasn't just a day of healings, it was a re-energizing of testimonies for the Mormons. They were renewed in their convictions, and especially in their belief that Joseph Smith was a prophet. Wilford Woodruff remembered this as the greatest day for the manifestation of the power of God through the gift of healing since the organization of the church. Now, about that red silk handkerchief. As Joseph Smith was near the river, according to the journal of Wilford Woodruff, a local non-member had heard about what was happening and decided to approach Joseph Smith and plead that he would accompany the man to his home to heal his dying twin babies. Joseph Smith said that he could not go, but handed Wilford Woodruff a red silk handkerchief and told Wilford to administer to the children and promised that if he'd wipe their faces with the handkerchief, they'd be healed. According to Wilford, he accompanied the non-member to his home while Joseph stayed among the Mormons, and Wilford records that after he wiped the children's faces with the handkerchief, they were immediately healed. The red silk handkerchief would be used to heal any non-Mormons in the area in need of a healing blessing. So what happened to that red silk handkerchief, and where can you see it today? The red handkerchief would remain in Wilford Woodruff's possession for the rest of his life. This experience seemed to cement Wilford's testimony. Shortly after this, Joseph Smith would call Wilford on a mission to England. He would be asked to leave everything while his children were sick. We discussed his successes there in episode 19 of this podcast. Wilford would baptize thousands of converts that would migrate to join the Mormons in Nauvoo. Wilford would go on to become the fourth prophet to lead the Mormon church after Joseph Smith. Before he dies he'll leave the red silk handkerchief in the possession of the Mormon church. Today, you can see that red silk handkerchief in the Mormon History Museum in Salt Lake City, Utah. It's quite a sight. If you can't make it to Salt Lake, be sure to Google image search it. You'll notice a corner has been cut from the handkerchief. 
According to Wilford Woodruff, it was removed by a tear-filled non-member that couldn't believe her children had been healed and wanted to keep a piece of it with her. So today's object is one of the least known that I'll cover on the list of objects, but I wanted to cover it because it signifies a shift for the Mormons. In the next episodes, we'll see an explosion of growth in Nauvoo. It will see the city grow to be the largest in Illinois, even bigger than Chicago. July 22, 1839 was a day of miracles and healed not just the Mormon bodies, but the Mormons' faith in the church and the prophet Joseph Smith. The red silk handkerchief would seal the testimony of a future Mormon prophet. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Mormon Church in 50 Objects. Episode 25, Joseph Smith's Red Silk Handkerchief. We're halfway through this project with 25 more to go. I hope you'll join me the rest of the way. And as always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomchistoryofmormonchurch at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.